Colossians chapter 4. Look with me at verse 10, and let me read the passage one more time as we prepare our hearts for the hearing of the word. We're going to wrap up our study on Colossians today and complete the study of those in this this photograph that Paul has included with this letter to the Colossian church. Beginning in verse 10 of Colossians 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. We're completing the end of Colossians 4 here, but as a way of introduction, let's go back to Colossians 1 and look quickly as a review over this book and what we have studied. We saw in chapter 1 the preeminence of Christ, the glory and majesty of the gospel, and who we are and what we have in Christ, the hope of glory. We see that in verse 15 as an example. He is the image, Christ, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The glory of Christ and who he is and what we have as our standing before God because of the work of Christ. That in some of its summation is there in Colossians 1. In chapter 2, we have looked at the value of Christ over everything else. And we looked at the danger of false and deceptive forms of the gospel, where we have interjected man's uh, line of thinking or his, what we think is truth. We looked at asceticism. Uh, we looked at uh, different false forms of the gospel. We looked at works-based salvation. We looked at a lot of things in Colossians 2, things that corrupt the gospel. And then in chapter 3, we saw how the gospel changes us and our relationships around us and the Christian society as a whole, as you see there in verse 18 and following of the end of Colossians 3, where it begins to get into social relationships and how the gospel, now that we have Christ, and if by God's grace we have him truly and understand what he really has done for us in Colossians 2, Colossians 3 shows how that works out on a day-to-day person-to-person basis. Colossians 4, we looked at uh, some general instructions on prayer there in verse 2, and evangelism, and how we interact with other believers in verse 5, and then Paul now is wrapping up this letter with a photograph as we have been looking at. 
We looked last week at two of his closest friends, two of his closest companions, Antichagus and Onesimus, and we noted that Tychicus was noted for his faithful service to the Lord and to Paul, and that the Lord, in his uh, grace and mercy to us, is willing to use men with a sinful past, as was portrayed in the life of Onesimus. And today, we're going to take a deeper look at uh, this photograph as we look at verse 10 and forward, and these men have less about them. We know less about them than Tychicus and Onesimus, but there's still, we can lo- there's still lots we can learn from them and how we can imitate, imitate Christ through them, through their example. I have found that this study has been most helpful to me and that it, help, it has helped um, kind of take the New Testament and put it in a proper place. It would be as if you're looking at a big jigsaw puzzle which comes to mind and you've got all these pieces around and you're wondering how in the world do they all fit? And it just looks huge and then you, you eventually get all the pieces together and it comes to this beautiful picture. And that in some way is what we have here with this photograph is the New Testament, you're, you're kind of thinking, well, how does Paul interact with Peter and, and then where's the apostles fit in and then we have Christ and, and this seems like a super long period of time and we're... Here at the end here of Colossians, it has really helped to see how all of these things are tied together and the, um, the picture there of the New Testament, the storyline flows a little better and I hope you're going to see that today as we look at these men. Look, look with me there at the text. Uh, just The text itself gives a very clear outline, so look with me there. In verse 10 and 11, we have three of Paul's Jewish friends. We're going to meet Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who is called Justice. In verse 12 through 14, we're introduced to three of Paul's Gentile friends, Epaphras. Then we get to meet a personal physi- his personal physician in Luke, and then this man, Demas. In verse 15 through 17, uh, the outline would show us that we have then three general greetings and some subsequent instructions. We have the brothers to or the church at Laodicea to greet, we have this lady Nympha in the house, uh, the, the, the church that meets within her home, and then this man Archippus. And then finally, in verse 18, we will sign off the letter of Colossians, the study there, as Paul signs off on the letter. This study has been uh, really good, uh, I believe, for our, our church as a whole. I know it's very much blessed me. Uh, and lately, this last two weeks, as I've studied more deeply into this man, it's been very encouraging to me as well as convicting, and I trust that it will be and has been for you as well. Let's look at um, verse 10 and meet this first gentleman, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. I'm going to look at all of these individuals this morning that are listed here, but I'm going to note three of them specifically, and one would be Mark, Demas, and Archippus. But first we have Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. And who is this man, and what does Scripture say about him? Well, it's, it's significant enough to note what Paul says about him here, my fellow prisoner. And he's not saying he's a fellow bondservant in Jesus Christ, as he is mentioned about Tychicus. He's really saying, this guy is in prison next to me. He's a fellow prisoner. And that's very significant because in the scriptural record here, there's nothing that we can see that shows that Aristarchus uh, was ever thrown into jail or that he ever did anything that would throw him into jail. Let's look at Acts 19. Turn with me to Acts 19 and let's look at where we first see him mentioned. Acts 19. 
Paul is in Ephesus. Verse 23, there begins to be this commotion. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trade and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So the bottom line, the money was being affected. And there begins to be a commotion and it breaks out in a full-on riot. And one of the things that the people do in this riot is they grab two people and take them to the theater. And back then, when you went to the theater, you went, didn't go to see some play. You were part of the program. And if uh, you ever got to go twice, you were in well, you were in good form. Because normally, you went once, you didn't come back. And so they grabbed these two individuals and rushed them off to the theater. Look at me at verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus. Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. That's the first time we see him, who this man Articus is. He's with Paul, uh, alongside him. And we see here in, in Acts 20, he's not actually a Macedonian. He's a Thessal- Thessalonican. Verse 4. Of the Thessalonians, Articus is one of these men who is with Paul. And we learn that he goes with Paul on his third missionary journey. He's a companion with him. He is still with Paul all the way over in Acts 27. Flip with me over there. Paul is sailing for Rome. And he gets himself in quite this adventure and a storm at sea. And this man Aristarchus is with him. Verse 2. And embarking in a ship which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. This man is with him. He's a fellow prisoner because he hangs out with those who are in prison. He's faithful to Paul. And I think it's significant that uh, we study this man, Aristarchus, because he's really a model of a friend for all, for, for all seasons. He sticks with Paul through thick and thin. Whether it's out in sea and uh, they're in this midst of the storm and all that that goes along, whether it's in a riot, whether it's in the good times, or whether it's in a bad, he is a companion through the difficult situations or the blessings that Paul has in life and he walks along with him. He doesn't shirk from the hard times. Uh, He doesn't necessarily look for times of glamour with Paul. He doesn't need the approval of the masses. He's strong and resolute in his faith, and he serves Paul very faithfully. And notice, he's in the background. He's very busy. Uh, I could maybe see him as the logistical guy for Paul. He's working hard and helping Paul, but it's certainly not in a glamorous way. And he's working uh, faithfully for him, making good use of the opportunity that the Lord has provided for him. And we certainly need those type of people in the body of Christ. Those who will serve faithfully, with the talents they've been given, uh, whether it's glamorous or not, in the church, in the body of Christ. They're willing to be the hands and the feet and the arms. And those are the type of people that Aristarchus 
was and those are the type of people that we need because without the hands and the feet and uh, the arms of the body of Christ you've got a very disabled body but we're oftentimes looking for the glamorous side of things where we can be seen we need people like Aristarchus who will serve faithfully behind the scenes look with me then at Colossians 4 again let's look at our next person The next man we meet here is Mark. If Aristarchus is the model of a friend for all seasons, then it's very interesting that Mark is mentioned at all here in the biblical record because he was anything but a friend for all seasons. In fact, there was a time when Paul couldn't stand to have him around. Look with me over here in verse in Acts 12. Acts 12. We only have 10 verses in all of Scripture about this man, John Mark. But if there's any man in Scripture that has more to say about his character and who he was and what impact he had uh, in that many verses, I think John Mark uh, takes the lead. Not much to say about him, but we learn a whole lot about him. Acts 12, uh, verse 12, is where we first meet this man, Mark. And apparently, he's a pretty young man. Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, Peter is imprisoned. And he has this miraculous rescue from prison in verse 6 of Acts 12. And then we scroll on down and he uh, gets broken out and he goes to a prayer meeting, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, this is in Jerusalem, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered and together were praying. So he gets out of jail, he goes to this prayer meeting, and that's when we first get uh, mentioned Mark. And apparently he had quite, going, quite a lot going for him. Uh, he apparently was a young man, and he had um, fellowship with some pretty high individuals. He was talking to Peter there, he was in this prayer meeting, he was involved with the church, and had a lot of promise, so much promise, that Paul and Barnabas, at the end of Acts uh, 12, decide to take him on the first missionary journey. Look with me at verse 25 of Acts 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now go to 13.5, Acts 13.5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So he's involved in this ministry. He's involved in this first uh, missionary journey of Paul. And then get down to uh, Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. The going got tough. And John bailed and went back home to Mama. Ran for Jerusalem. Just when the first missionary journey really began to get going and the times really began to get tough, Paul, I mean, uh, Mark bails, John Mark bails and runs back to Jerusalem. Now we see John Mark again in Acts 15. Acts 15, 36. Paul is preparing to go on his second missionary journey with Barnabas. And Barnabas suggests that Paul, that Paul bring John Mark along. Look with me at verse 36 of Acts 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take, them, not to take with them one 
who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening Sicilia, strengthening the churches. There's this sharp disagreement. Why? Well, there's some blood relatives involved. Barnabas, as we know, according to Colossians 4, is a cousin of John Mark. And so he's thinking, well, you know, look, he, he, he bailed on the first time. But we know, according to Scripture, that Barnabas was a son of encouragement. That's what his name meant. He was an encourager. So what he saw is, yep, he bailed on the first time, but let's give him another chance. Let's try him out once more time. Paul is thinking, look, I don't mind if you're a new believer. I'll start you from the bottom and work your way up. But if you bail on me, I don't have time. I don't have time for you. uh, Paul is more of an an outgoing type of fellow, I can imagine. He was more of a leader. He was about the work of the Lord. He was going forward. And if you wanted to start new and afresh and come along, he had no problem with that. But if you showed signs of weakness, he just did not have time. And then you see the strength of the body of Christ here. Barnabas comes along and encourages him. Now, we go from Paul having a sharp disagreement, and I would note that there's, interest, there's an interesting, a whole other sermon here about what it means to there can be sharp disagreements within the body of Christ, within the leaders within a church, and the Lord be honored in how it's uh, done, how it's worked through. But there's a sharp disagreement. Paul can't, doesn't want him in his sight, doesn't want him around. And then somehow, something happens between here and Acts 15 all the way to the end of Paul's life in... Uh, 2 Timothy. Let's go over to 2 Timothy 4. This is Paul's final letter. He's approaching the very end of his life. And he writes to Timothy. And we see John Mark show up again. Second Timothy 4. Verse 11. Luke alone is with me. And what does he say? Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. This is a very interesting uh, person that we've got in this photograph here. A man that at one time Mark just would, I mean, Paul would just not have had in his close circle. And then something happens from Acts 15 all the way to the end of Paul's life. And now, one of the only men besides his personal physician that he wants close to his person as he begins to uh, leave this life is Mark. So what happens? What happens? Look with me over at 1 Peter. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5. Now, we noted in uh, the first time we see mentioned in Acts 12, John, uh, John Mark, and he knew Peter. Well, we see him again knowing Peter in verse Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Look with me here. Again, this is Peter finishing out his letter. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This is the same John Mark, and he calls him my son. Well, what happened? I I think what happened is uh, John Mark, 
who was a quitter, had the son of encouragement, Barnabas, take him alongside, and they went and found Peter. Now, if there was a man that could help you when it comes to quitting, it was Peter. He knew what it was like to uh, go out hard in a dead sprint on a long marathon and then just collapse a couple hundred yards in. He knew what it was like to be driven by emotions more than by faithfulness and the truth. He knew what it was like to have a second chance. And Peter was a man who was able to bring him alongside and help him forward to the point that there was enough discipleship there that Mark came around. Now, I don't know uh, about you, but I think I can identify and uh, have some understanding with John Mark. There's always in our lives times when we jump a little too far ahead of the gun. Or there's times when we go out a little too strong and then we, we fail. And there's times when we're more like the Paul of thinking, I just can't stand this person who's ah, strong, 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 slow, strong, slow, you know, going out hard, then he fails. I need a person who's consistently faithful, just steady drumbeat. But then there's other of us, others of us that have more of the ability of Barnabas to go, look, I'm just going to give this guy a chance. We've got to work him along slow. Peter was probably going, look, I've been there, done that. You can't do that. But let me help you grow in what it means to be faithful. The Lord used John Mark to such a point that uh, he was, he, he's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He had the blessing of the Lord uh, through this time of going out strong, backsliding a little bit, getting, getting weak. And yet the Lord used discipleship to bring him to such a point where he had this opportunity and the blessing of writing the Gospel of Mark. So much so that some would uh, go with me to, to Mark 14. Uh, so much so that people, some people would say, some theologians would contribute this young man that we actually see in Mark 14.51 as being John Mark. We don't know that, but he certainly would correspond with, to the same personality that John Mark has. It's just a little blurb in uh, Mark, Mark 14, verse 51. And a young man followed him, meaning followed the Lord, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Here would be the uh, same type of personality. We don't know if that's John Mark. A lot would say that probably was John Mark, a man who, uh, when the growing got tough, when the chips were down, he was accustomed to fleeing. And by God's grace, the uh, Lord worked in his life and brought him around to such a point that, and the man in this photograph was one of the only men at the end of Paul's life that he wanted right alongside him. Let's go back to Colossians 4 now. There's been much that we can learn from the study of John Mark and getting a second chance. Um, much we can learn from what it means to be a Barnabas or a Paul in another man's life or a Peter. I would commend that study to you in your personal walk with the Lord. We don't have time for that today, but there's certainly much to be said there about the Lord's grace and those who um, maybe have some habits that don't go well with being faithful to the ministry, and yet by the gospel and God's grace, you can break those and move forward. Let's see who's next here. We had a friend uh, who failed and was restored in John Mark. We had a friend who's a man for all seasons over there with 
uh, Aristarchus, and then we come to this man, Jesus, who is called Justice. He might have been the guy on the second row, far back left. He didn't really know much about him, but there is some that we can learn about him. First of all, uh, notice his name. Uh, He was a Jewish man, uh, but he had a, as many of these men, he had a Greek name, but he was a Jewish man. And notice that he is a man who comforts Paul. You see that in verse 11. But notice his name, Jesus, who is called Justice. He gets it from either way. Uh, Jesus would be the Greek word for Joshua, meaning Savior, and Justice, meaning Righteous. He has got uh, quite the name to live up to. And I would note that so do we. We're called Christians, followers of Christ. How are we doing on living up to our name? This man, Jesus, who is called Justice, did well to live up to his name. If you look at this word comfort in verse 11, uh, the Greek form of it has a medicinal uh, connotation to it. That through these, these three men, these Jewish men, were very much a comfort to Paul. Because you know, according to Acts 28, that Paul had a real heart for the Jewish community and, in fact, tried to minister to them, and they rejected it, uh, fell away from it, and he ended up with the Gentiles. But you can imagine, he probably still has quite a burning in his soul for these, these people. And there's three men who were willing to stand up, Uh, willing to leave their homes, willing to take up their cross and follow the Lord, and that very much encouraged Paul. And we've got the same thing. We may have rejection from maybe uh, our, our close family or our extended family. We may have rejection from the world. But if we have the name Christ, we should be willing to take up our cross and follow him, be willing to do Uh, what Christ would do even amidst the hardship of life. This man, Jesus Justice, was just that type of individual. And I would also note that these men comforted Paul. And I think we've got to ask ourselves the question, are we a comfort to those around us? Are you a friend that is a comfort to those that are around you, whether it's in their difficult times or their good times? Are we a comfort to those around us? We move now to this three men that are uh, Gentiles. We see up next would be Epaphras. Epaphras is a friend who prays. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. He's a prayer warrior, and he struggles on behalf of those he's praying for. You know, have you ever thought that we use that term prayer warrior? Why don't we say prayer friend or prayer companion or just someone who prays? Prayer in its truest nature is very much a struggle. It's a battle. And I, I was, as I was preparing this, I, I began to think about all the different times you see um, the, the emotions behind those who pray in Scripture. Christ, when Christ prayed at one point, he had drops of blood come. We see uh, the publican beating his breast and crying out, woe is me, you know, not able to, to really pray, not worthy of praying. Prayer in its uh, entirety is war. It's a fighting, a warring in the spirit for the sake of Christ. We need people, we need friends who are willing to pray. 
They may not be alongside you as you are able to be alongside you as you preach the gospel or share Christ with someone. They may not be able to go here on a missionary trip with you, but they can pray and they're willing to pray and they're faithful prayer warriors. And this very much encouraged Paul. He had a friend that would pray with him. If nothing else, pray with him. Uh, I, I remember when Gerald Sarawaji was in the States. That was a great encouragement to me because he'd just come on Friday and we'd just get on our knees in there and we'd pray. We didn't say much else. We just prayed together. But it was an encouragement to my soul and I pray one to his as well. We need friends who will just come and pray with us. Are we willing to be those type of friends to pray with one another? Next up, we see this man, Luke, the beloved physician. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas in in, uh, Colossians 4, verse 14. Here's a friend who is willing to use his talents for God's glory. He's a physician, and he knows his his trade, his craft, but he's willing to use it. he didn't notice. He didn't just lay it down. And say, well, you know, I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to be a physician anymore. I'm going to go over do over here. No, he's. I'm going to take with me what I am, the talents God's given me. I'm good at medicine, so I'm going to assist Paul with his personal needs. And we don't know what else uh, he did or who else he assisted with, but I'm sure he was willing to assist those he came in contact with. Luke wasn't a preacher. And he certainly wasn't a missionary in the typical sense. He was just a doctor, but he was faithful in the talents and abilities God had given him. And we certainly know that we need to do the same thing. Your talents and abilities might be completely different than someone else's. But are you faithful to use them as God would allow you to do so? Now here's another gentleman in uh, verse 14, Demas, that we really don't know too much about. We see him mentioned in Philemon. Uh, 1 verse 24 as being with Paul there and then we don't see him again until 2nd Timothy 4 verse 10 go with me there 2nd Timothy 4 verse 10 do your best to come to me as come to me soon verse 10 For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I think we've got one of the things we've got to remember from this man, Demas, is in life, as you come in contact with the Christian body, there are always going to be Demases. There are always going to be that those who love the present world more than they love Christ. And for a time, they very well will look like good, strong Christians. This man, Demas, obviously walked with Paul for some time. And then he fell away. The lesson for us, I think, is twofold, obviously. One is there's going to be those, and we can't be um, taken off guard when someone we've known for a long time just falls away. But we also have got to remember that we don't want to be the Demas. The man that looks good, is hanging out with the right crowd, saying the right things, ministering with the right people, but is obviously hiding some things. Is not willing to truly face up to the affections of his heart and the fact that they may not be where they should be. They're in love with this present world. And the, the heart 
that you have will come out. It may take some time. You might be able to put a nice pretty package on it for a while, but eventually it'll come out. It'll, it is uh, going, to be stu- going to be tried by the test of time. And we know this because there's going to be some people, the scriptures say many, that when Christ returns, he's going to say, I never knew you. And they're going to say, well, the package looked good. I did all these things. Come on now. And he's going to say, I never knew you. It really goes to the heart of the matter. Demas really calls out, how's your heart doing? How are you doing when no one sees you? When no one is around you? When you can do whatever you want to do? Which, where's the love of your heart? That is the lesson, I think, or one of the lessons of this man, Demas. He fell away. He was faithful for a time. But faithfulness for a time is really not faithfulness. It's got to last. It's got to go the distance. We've got to be very careful that young people, you've got to be very careful. Is this thing you call a relationship with the Lord really yours and really true? Or is it just the package because everybody else around you is doing it? That will be tested. That will be tested. And I pray and hope and trust that you will be found to be faithful to the Lord. Let's continue on here. We've met these three Gentiles. And now in verse 15, we begin to close out this book. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Well, we've got these different words here. What is Laodicea? What is Aeropolis? Where are these places? Well, they're, they're twofold. There was, where Paul was writing was to the church at Colossians, but it was kind of a tri-city. Laodicea was another uh, part of that tri-city. Aeropolis was another one. And it was, it was sort of like if you went to Dallas and you have the Metroplex, uh, or if you have, go to San Antonio and you've got Bernie and you've got Seguin and you've got New Braunfels and you've got Austin and there's this kind of towns that are interconnected. Well, that was the same thing. You had Laodicea and you had the Colossa and you had Aeropolis. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, but he's saying, look, take it, take it, you know, right down the road there and also read it to the church just right down the road at Laodicea. And we don't have the record, but apparently he also wrote a church. He also wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. And he said, now, after you guys read it, switch it on over and read it. Because it wasn't just for one church, it was for the body of Christ. It's been encouraging us, it's for the body of Christ as a whole. So that's what is being talked about here. We see the, uh, the, the beginning church, this first century church, was oftentimes met in a house. Uh, that was for two reasons. One, oftentimes if you were such a small group, didn't need a bigger place, you just met in a local home. If you were such a big group, you would split up into smaller groups in order to be able to encourage one another and be able to get to everybody. And so there's, a, there's, some, there's, there's some good things there. What it's not saying, as the whole text of Scripture, it would be wrong to say, well, look, the only way we should be meeting then is the house, you know. Everyone just rotate houses to houses to houses. There's times for that. There's times to come together and then go and be in smaller groups to be able to strengthen one another. That's why we have midweekly Bible studies and things of that nature. There's that model there. But he's writing and encouraging them and, and greeting these people. Notice he, he includes this lady, Nympha, and the church in her house. That's not to say she was the pastor. She was obviously had enough room to have a church come to her house. And he's saying, go say hi to her. That encouraged him that she would be involved in the work of the Lord. 
Then we get to verse 17 and we have this man Archippus. And he would be the third person I want to put a little more emphasis on this morning as we close our time here. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. We see him also in Philemon with Paul as well. So apparently he's in this area and at one time he was, um, he's in the church and Paul is writing and when he writes this letter to Philemon, which is going with the letters we talked about last week to the church at Colossians, he is telling this man, Archippus, to fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now I don't know why he says it. We don't know anything about him. I think we could assume that this man, Archippus, as is clearly said here in verse 16, is in the church at Laodicea. Go with me to Revelations 3. That's one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelations 3. Let's go over there, Revelation 3. Verse 14. Revelation three fourteen. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And this is what uh, the Lord says about the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit, out of, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not really realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness, may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I don't know uh, what was going on in Archippus' life, but he was in this church, and maybe he was not uh, where he needed to be. Maybe he was lukewarm. We don't know that. Uh, I think we can assume that he was in a church that was not um, as strong as it could have been. And Paul is exhorting him to fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Look carefully at that. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And oftentimes we're looking for a ministry. We're looking to take on something. When in reality, the Lord has given us, he has brought to us things he desires for us to do for his, the furtherance of his kingdom. And every one of us has received some sort of ministry. It might be to the home. It might be to the business. It might be to the neighbors. It might be to the patients that come in your office. It might be to your guests. It might be to your clients. We have some sort of ministry if we are believers that have re- we have received from the Lord. And I know oftentimes I'm so busy thinking about all the things I wish I had that would enable me to be a better uh, minister for the gospel that I fail to fulfill that which I have been given. And that I think be oftentimes where we fall as this man Archippus. We're right, we're in the church, we've been given something to do, small, medium or large, And we need that encouragement to be faithful and disciplined to do it. To be faithful and disciplined to do it. When you look at over all these men that Mark, that Paul, excuse me, has mentioned, the prevailing theme is faithfulness. Paul was about those who would be faithful. 
God is about those who be faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Paul exhorts Timothy, entrust these things to faithful men. Lord wants us to be faithful with what we've been given. Paul had people around him that were faithful to the Lord. Do we have people around us that are faithful to him? Can people rely upon us around them to be faithful to the Lord? Oftentimes I think this man Archippus may be the one who is the most like you and I. We've been given a ministry. We've been in the church. But we wane at times. And Paul is exhorting this man, come on now, it's time to to fulfill it. It's time to complete it. It's time to go to work. It's time to bear down. It's time to do what you've been called to do. Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't say, well, you're just going to have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it done. He closes this letter with grace be with you. I, Paul, write this reading with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. We've got to remember that if we're going to be faithful to the Lord, If we're going to be faithful friends, if we're going to be faithful to the work God has called us to do, it's only by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that we're ever going to be like Christ. It's only by the grace of God that I'm ever going to desire to be like Christ. It's only by the grace of God that I'm ever going to be faithful. You know, even on my best day, I wouldn't be faithful to the Lord if it wasn't for His grace. But yet, because of Christ in me, even on my worst day, God can get glory. That's amazing grace. That when I wake up and I fall into sin, that Christ is still going to somehow use those things for his glory. If I would repent and turn to him. God's amazing grace. Christ in me, the hope of glory is working in me a mysterious work that is the progressive sanctification of a sinner deserving hell. A sinner deserving hell, and yet God's grace keeps me his. Matthew Henry said, When the convinced sinner sees Christ as the gracious Savior, all things else become worthless to his thoughts. That's who Paul was, I think, in many ways. He was a convinced sinner who saw Christ and realized the graciousness that was afforded to him and everything else became worthless. And that's the way we're going to have to be if we're going to be faithful to the Lord. Is we're going to have to realize that we are deserving of all things pertaining to God's wrath and hell that comes with that. And yet Christ, as a gracious Savior, has given us the ability to do everything Paul has written to us in the book of Colossians. These things are not easy. But because of the grace of God, we can do it. And he's given us the power to do that which he has called us to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your grace that is greater than all our sin. And Lord, as we come now to a time of the Lord's table, communion with you, Lord, we don't have the ability to come rightly before you and to partake with you, but by your grace, you've empowered us to do so, and we thank you for that. We thank you for this book, the book of Colossians, the instructions given to us. 
We thank you for the examples of these men and women that Paul has mentioned. And Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful friends to one another, to Christ. Forgive us when we're not, Lord. And help us to see, Lord, that oftentimes our faith, our lack of faithfulness to one another, it may be a sign of our lack of faithfulness to you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would protect me and protect us from being Demises, those who love the present world more than they do you. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes each and every day to the the sinner that I am, the just punishment that I deserve, and yet the glorious, wondrous grace that has been given to me through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that those thoughts would sink deep within us and we would, on a daily basis, be driven to be totally and wholly consumed by you more than anything else. We ask now, Lord, that as we would come to your table, you might grant this to be a time of remembrance as is commanded in Scripture and a time of celebration and a time of uh, reorientation of our hearts before you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.